Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. Yeah, the only thing that last night was missing is Russell Crowe running out on stage with a couple of swords, chucking one at the moderators, holding the other one out and going, are you not entertained? It had it all. I mean, last night's debate was the knockdown drag out, the intrigue, the drama that even just as a spectator sport was intriguing. And it had something else that previous debates hadn't had for Democrats. Ratings. Actually, people watching it last night. Now, we are getting down to crunch time, but there also is another notable addition, that being Michael Bloomberg. And certainly, the the sharp knives came out for him during the course of the festivities last night. But you you take a look at the ratings. Uh, Just in today, over 20 million people at the low end uh, that tuned in for the NBC networks in the debate last night. You had primetime shows. That were beating the Democrat debates previously. You have more people at any given time that are watching reruns of Seinfeld than watching the Democrats' debates before. So now people are engaged, and I'm glad. Because last night was a teachable moment unlike many we've ever had, at least in decades. Now, I am Brian Mudd in for the great one Mark Levin Do. The Morning Rush, WJNO in West Palm Beach, and I'm not rubbing it in, but it is 78 and part, uh, partly cloudy right now. Uh, I also do the Brian Mudd Show, WIOD in Miami, and uh, always an honor and a pleasure to be right here with you. My now unverified Twitter account, this is the kind of stuff you can make up two weeks ago when I was with you, uh, guest hosting for The Great One. My Twitter account, after five years, became unverified, and some of you wondered, is this still you? Yes, my Twitter account has not been hijacked. At Brian Mud Radio is still me. I'm just now unverified. And Twitter is not giving me any explanation or any response. But nevertheless, I'm sure it was just pure coincidence. Now, a couple of things about this teachable moment in last night's debate. You take a look at what was on display. It was the Democrat Party in all its glory. The real mess that it represents these days. But there's something else that Bernie Sanders has really brought to the forefront, this time especially. And that is honesty about who and what these people are. As they mixed it up last night, you got to see, with no ambiguity, each and every one of them. You heard capitalism get booed by Bernie Sanders and capitalism get booed by Elizabeth Warren. You did have Elizabeth Warren from a strategic standpoint that ended up uh, going pretty much nuclear on everybody. Look, it was a smart strategic plan. She's in the middle of nowhere right now. 
She is on the verge of having to get out of this thing if she doesn't end up gaining some traction quickly. But the most important thing is that when she was dishing it out and executing against her plan, it also provided the opportunity to see how others respond under attack. And that in particular had some revealing moments for Michael Bloomberg. Now, one of the things that is important in the the grand scheme of this entire conversation, you have all kinds of talking heads who have lots to say about a lot of different things, but opinions that for the most part don't matter. Walk back to the 2016 election cycle. What were you hearing about Donald Trump in debates? Even during the Republican primary, You'd often hear, oh, you know, he took some hits and he wasn't so sharp on this answer or that. Did any of that matter? No, because the opinions are worth what you pay for them. So the first thing I understand is all this stuff about, oh, Warren won and, you know, Bloomberg had a bad night. The only thing that matters is if you happen to be a Democrat primary voter and one, that's your opinion. Two, if you actually would change your vote based upon a debate performance which is even less likely. There are very few people that are undecided. So I say again, what last night's debate ended up doing was providing clarity about the party, not so much clarity about, ooh, you know, if you perceived Elizabeth Warren, have a good night, now you're suddenly going to go vote for her. Uh, it, probably not so much. She, she's still probably in no man's land other than having raised a bunch of money off of that performance. It was a strong performance. And Michael Bloomberg, the oddity of his situation. So here he is. He's been running a media campaign, unlike anybody else, crafting his image so that the only mainstream image of him is what he wanted you to know. And then getting bruised from all corners. But to his credit, espousing one thing, and that is a belief in capitalism. Now, One of the things that I have always cautioned about in elections, this is true if it's your HOA in your community. It's true if it's your municipal government, your state, anywhere. And just as an aside, you know, as we head into these primary seasons and everything else, as your state comes up, good chance you got local elections too. I would say this for the local shows. Odds are that the election that is held closest to where you live geographically It's going to have more of an impact on your day-to-day life than most other elections. So pay attention to them and make sure you elect good people there, too, because that's where a lot of this crazy crap happens in the first place, like poo on the streets in San Francisco, right? Anyway, you take a look at the lay of the land back in 2016. You had an effort with Democrats and their allies in the media to do what? To build up Donald Trump. Now, why were they doing that? Was it because they wanted Donald Trump? No. It was because they perceived Donald Trump to be the easiest to beat. Now, it even took Donald Trump a bit by surprise when the Morning Joes of the world and all of his seeming friends in leftist news media turned on him as soon as he had the nomination in hand. It was all part of their plan. But the the one really important consideration in this, I hear a lot of people talking about, oh, Bernie Sanders, you know, he's really pulled out to a lead in the polls. He really looks strong. I really hope that he wins the nomination because he will be so easy to beat. Something about that 
How well did that strategy work for Democrats? How well did it work for the media? They got what they were looking for in Donald Trump. You think they would take any of those other establishment Republican candidates from 2016 over Donald Trump today? You got to be careful what you wish for. It's kind of like the coronavirus. You know, we got the uh, most recent information in about the coronavirus. The improved news is that the odds of you dying from it, the, the closed cases, 12%. Now, that's better than the 20% death rate we were talking about this time last week. Now, d- does that mean, well, the, the odds are, even if you came across the coronavirus, you're not going to die, so it's not that bad? No, because if there's a, a 9 in 10 chance you're going to be okay, but a 1 in 10 that you die, you don't want to be anywhere near that, right? When you're taking a look at the Democrats, and it's all out there on display for you, Bernie Sanders is the coronavirus. He's a freaking socialist. And they're all progressives. I've got empirical data about just how progressive and how leftist they are. I'm going to get to that coming up during the course of this hour. Really interesting empirical information about just how much government intervention these candidates want relative to our current president. But the one thing in particular is that whatever your perception of Bernie Sanders is, whomever the Democrats nominate has a chance. And whether it is 50%, 10%, 1%, if it's a socialist, a socialist on the other side, I'm not taking that 1% chance. And this is why it's important to have these conversations with people who you may even disagree with politically. Because it is the all-time teachable moment about what the Democrats truly are. It is the risk unlike any that we've had in, in some time in this country. Where we do have the honesty of a Bernie Sanders mixed up with the confused progressive pragmatism of a Michael Bloomberg. And the one thing that I have to say about Bloomberg is, hey, at least the guy is a capitalist. That's more than we can say for the other Democrats. Now, next steps. If suddenly being a capitalist is the real C word, if suddenly socialism is going to be on display to have an honest conversation about, maybe we should dig in just a little bit to what the Democrats have been working towards all this time. Progressivism. Bernie Sanders' version of of democratic socialism. Is this a new thing? Of course not. He just happens to be in a leadership position. I was thinking about my dad. He uh, always says he grew up in upstate New York, Democrat, And uh, last voted for JFK among Democrats. And he talks about how JFK, in today's politics, more conservative than most Republicans. So what was it that ultimately changed from JFK to LBJ, for example? Well, the role of government in our lives. Whereas the JFK was all about cutting taxes, more personal liberty, more personal freedom. Quite the opposite with the divide-and-conquer policies of Democrats, of progressives from that point forward. The systematic effort that was underway to destroy especially black families and minority families. Breaking down the family unit 
creating government reliance on social programs. What does that sound like? Sounds an awful lot like today. We have record prosperity. We have more people working than ever before. We have record low unemployment rates for every minority group in this country. We have record wages for all Americans, but they've risen fastest for those at the lowest end of the socioeconomic scale. These are all facts. It's beyond dispute. Yet we're running against that. But it's always been part of the plan. This is a desperate time for Democrats. It's part of why it is getting so dramatic on stage. And you're seeing the truth really come to the forefront. Because what Donald Trump is doing, what his policies are illustrating, are the lies of the progressives, the lies of the Democrats. And not just a Bernie Sanders in the here and now, but what the Democrats have been doing for decades. So we're going to get into the path that has been brought to us, starting all the way back with LBJ and company, marching all the way through to Bernie Sanders today. And I'm going to give you information that you can take, read, and share that will put in very specific terms how much less freedom economically, in terms of control over decisions, each of these candidates represent. We'll get to that coming up next. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mud Lovin. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. Because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide. For example, through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools it's helping to found coast-to-coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. Buttigieg really has a slogan that was thought up by his consultants to paper over a thin version of a plan that would leave millions of people unable to afford their health care. It's not a plan, it's PowerPoint. And Amy's plan is even less. It's like a post-it note. Insert plan here. You know, things got so rough last night that you even had Elizabeth Warren roughing up the booty judge. I mean, come on now. It's tough out there on that stage last night for sure. Hey, it's uh, Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. And Mark, he is in Israel. I am super excited for this show. Benjamin Netanyahu, special Life, Liberty, and Levin coming up 8 o'clock this Sunday. And uh, cannot wait. Now, here's the deal. Right now, or as soon as it's safe for you to do so if you're driving, Hit your DVR and uh, make sure that you have 8 o'clock, the Fox News Channel, every Sunday. Life, Liberty, and Levin locked in. It's exactly what I do. If you catch it live, great. But if not, you make sure that you don't miss this can't-miss episode. 
coming up Sunday with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as they get ready for what's pretty wild, a third election over there in less than a year. Now, we're going to dissect uh, the Democrats running for president tonight. And I'm going to provide you with information about, in numerical terms, how much less freedom each of them represents. They're progressive parties. What they would take away from you and give to the government if they had their way. But first, I want to give you some policy positions and see if you can name this candidate. Someone who is pro-studying reparations to pay them out. Someone who is for the elimination of all private charter schools. Someone who believes that there should be no student loan debt, free college and puppies and lollipops for all. Someone who believes that we should abolish the Electoral College. Someone who believes in the restoration of felon voting rights without, without financial restitution paid to victims. This candidate believes in personal and corporate carbon taxes. Also believes that there should be a created and published national gun registry. This person believes that there should be no limits on abortion. This candidate believes in not just higher corporate taxes, along with the carbon stuff we talked about, but higher personal taxes as well. Now, you have an idea about who that candidate candidate is? Again, pro-reparations for the elimination of all private charter schools. No student loan debt because college is going to be free. We got you covered. For the abolition of the Electoral College, restoration of felon voting rights without financial restitution of victims, personal and corporate carbon taxes, to create a published national gun registry, someone who believes in no limits on abortion, someone who would like to see higher personal and corporate taxes. Now, I'm just curious. Your mind drift to perhaps a Bernie Sanders? maybe an Elizabeth Warren? Not exactly. Those are all defined policy positions of Pete Buttigieg. Yes, Mayor Pete. Oh, just he's a warm and fuzzy mayor from South Bend. What a nice guy. These are progressives. These are leftists. All of them. You need to know, and that's why what happened on that debate stage is the beginning of something very instructive. So we're going to continue to inform you. We'll take your calls as well. I'm Brian Mudd, filling in for the great one, Mark Levin. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. Because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide. For example, through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools 
It's helping to found Coast to Coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. The only show with a warning label for liberals. The Mark Levin Show. Call him now at 877-381-3811. In order to beat Donald Trump, we're going to need the largest voter turnout in the history of the United States. Uh, Mr. Bloomberg had policies in New York City of stop and frisk, which went after African-American and Latino people in an outrageous way. That is not a way you're going to grow voter turnout. Yeah, we don't do stop and frisk. We just divide and conquer, divide the family unit and get them on government programs. That's the way we do it. Isn't that right, Bernie? Moments of truth, honesty on stage at the Democrats debate last night. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. And there's also another truism as Bernie is exposing the Democrats for who and what they've been for quite some time, but just in, in very explicit terms. Uh, he is right about turnout and about excitement. One of the narratives, and I'll be bringing this to you in just a bit, that's out there. Uh, I So I track analytics. If uh, you have not heard me before, I... I Work on a couple of different ideas. The premise, I don't accept a false one. So uh, we, we start there. And then when you establish the premise, you have to have facts. And there are two sides of stories, but one side of facts. So one of the things I like to do is, is cut down through all the noise and take a look at all these polls that are out there, the accredited things, adjust for samples, take a look at what's real and what isn't. And uh, the one thing that's been true, there has not been a single week of the Trump presidency. This has not been the case. The sampling, President Trump performs best among likely voters. He performs worse among your boob on the street, your average adult sample. So the single best way for Democrats to be able to attack President Trump's weakness is to take the person who's a boob on the street, goes, oh yeah, Trump, bad, right? That's supposed to be what I say here, and convert that person into a voter. Because if we just take a look at the likely voters that are out there right now, President Trump looks like he is set up for a very significant victory come November. And I'll give you an idea of what the view of the possible is during the course of tonight's show, too. But before the break, I illustrated but one of the Democrat candidates for president. And uh, Mr. Producer, you were you were surprised, too, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, good old Mayor Pete. Moderate Mayor Pete, that the guy who is pro-reparations for the elimination of all charter schools, no student loan debt because he wants free college, for the abolition of the Electoral College, for the restoration of felon voting rights without financial restitution to victims, that is for personal and corporate carbon taxes, that believes that we should create a national gun registry, that feels that we should have no limits on abortion, and wants higher personal and corporate taxes, aside from just the carpet, I mean, just generally. That person is moderate Mayor Pete. That's actually what set me down in exercise. And I was having this conversation with Mr. Producer. So the deal is this. You know, uh, as an astute listener, that there are narratives that go out, the talking points, the media talking points. And the narrative after New Hampshire was that Pete Buttigieg is a moderate, right? He's a moderate. So 
instantly, I, I want to do a couple of things. Go straight to the facts. I want to see where he's put pen to paper and has said, this is what I stand for. So I did. And there happens to be a progressive organization, indivisible, that ends up getting these responses from candidates. And then they give them numerical rankings. I'll give you an idea of where Mayor Pete stands along with the others in just a bit. But the first thing is, I want to, okay, I have my ideas based upon what I've heard. But honestly, even when I took a look at the real scorecard, I was a bit surprised. And one thing is certain. Mayor Pete, no moderate. See, the definition of the term moderate is this. Number one, it's an adjective, but it's an average in amount, intensity, quality, or degree. So is the average American pro-reparations? Is the average American in favor of the elimination of all private charters? Does the average American believe that we should just make college free for everybody and just pay for it? Does the average American want the abolition of the Electoral College? Do they want felons to have voting rights without paying back victims? Do they want to have a personal carbon tax? Do they want to have a published national gun register? Is this the average American? Does the average American believe in no limits on abortion? Now, the thing is, on many of these issues, we have polls, and they're overwhelming. No, they do not. But what's the first thing you got to do? Well, you got to get the nomination, right? So will the real Mayor Pete please stand up? And this is him. But this also is what your godless, soulless, and slanderous news media does. They are so devoid of factual information. They are so intellectually insulting to anybody who comes by their crap that they, number one, will use an adjective as a precursor to a political candidate. Now, how could any news organization say they're objective when they're using adjectives to describe a political candidate? That inherently is a misnomer. That's one. But then those positions whether they know exactly what he stands for or not. He's no moderate. So then they're just lying to you. But then again, that's what your godless souls and slanderous news media does. They count on you being ignorant and or stupid. So I did a little bit of an exercise within 24 hours after New Hampshire when all of your GSS media was out there calling Mayor Pete the moderate. I wanted to see what news organizations had gone on the record with their straight news reporters using the term moderate for him. And there very well may have been others, but the ones that inside the first 24 hours used that term were ABC, NBC, Reuters, The Washington Post, and Vox. Consider the source. Now, when you take a look at the level of disinformation by your mainstream news media, what they're willing to perpetrate as a moderate simply in the interest of advancing their particular agenda and cause, what else are they willing to mislead you on? Well, the answer is a whole lot. And that's where we're going to get into not just their political agenda, but again, these Democrats and connect the dots going all the way back, all the way back to the destruction of minority families all the way back to the agenda of the Democrats, which has been right along for decades, to get as many people on government assistance programs 
which you have to have people in poverty. You have to have people that don't get ahead. You have to, by definition, have some kind of control over. You might even say, like slave masters, you might say the Democrats, the progressives at their core, want to be slave masters. The big lie. The big lie that they're for the little guy. The big lie that they're for minorities. Bull crap. Them and their godless souls and slanderous news media who does the bidding for them. Let's go to Frank in Philly. Frank, go. Frank, how you doing? Hey, doing well. I caught you last night for the first time. I said, I want you to be on tonight, so I'm glad you're there. <laughs> okay, you were really good last night. Appreciate it. Um, I have a simple question. Um, I'm confused about Bernie's attraction. I can understand high school kids about to enter college or college kids who believe it's going to be free tuition and free reimbursement. But his numbers are more than that, that um, age category. How come so many people are attracted to Bernie? I don't understand it. So you, you bring up an interesting question, which is where did all this come from? This is something the great one has talked about for quite some time. He doesn't blame uh, you know, many of the people that we are dealing with in the here and now for the problems. It started in the education establishment, right? Where did those problems really begin? Well, when you had the hippies, that ended up becoming not just the parents, but the teachers. And started taking over the education establishment. They started putting in policies that were straight out of rules for radicals. Right around the same time, you had policies that were breaking down the family unit, especially for minority families. They were looking to exploit those broken families by putting them on government assistance programs. And that would align to them about the, the opportunity that was there for them when all they were really trying to do was just keep power over them. It's the big lie of every liberal city. I mean, take a look at every hellhole in this country and Democrats run it. I mean, it's ridiculous. How much wealth do you have in San Francisco? How much wealth do you have in Los Angeles? How is it that they're hellholes? I mean, it's ridiculous. But the problem you that you're articulating, one thing I do want to you know always put in context. We see, for example, the burn is what? Averaging 28% of the polls. Look, that sucks. That's scary. But we are talking about, if that's the number, for him specifically, that's 28% of Democrats that are likely voters in the primary. Now, that's still far too many, but it's also not 28% of all Americans, and it also isn't necessarily indicative of the level of support he would have in a general election. That remains to be seen. But it is something that is uh, endemic of what's happened in our education establishment where financial literacy. You'll occasionally hear about this, and for most people, it's in one ear and out the other because, you know, you hear financial literacy, whatever, in the news, or it's boring. The the first thing is uh, the average high school graduate is financially illiterate. That should never happen. Can't take and pass a basic financial literacy test. But it's not just high school graduates. Over the past 10 years, the average college graduate has now been, uh, you know, dumbed down to the point where they are financially illiterate too. So if you have the most educated in our society that couldn't even pass a basic financial literacy test, what else don't they know? What else weren't they taught? What is their view? And belief about government. I mean, 
some of us will laugh at the idea that for some people, socialism has something to do with like socializing. But there actually is a segment of the population that believes this thing. So the real issue that we have, this is illustrative of our education establishment. Do I think that, you know, independent of decades worth of work, there would ever be somebody that would garner that much support in a major political party in this country? Well, 30 years ago, probably not. But this is the work of decades of a takeover of the education establishment. And it's why we need to take our schools back. And it's why we can never take anything for granted with our kids. It's also why things like financial literacy are important. There's a reason why, historically, most kids started out being more liberal in terms of their politics and eventually becoming more conservative. Because by the time you go, holy crap, that's how much they take in taxes? You start thinking about things differently. You start thinking about, oh, they already taken that much, and now they want to do free puppies and, and college for all? We can't afford that. Where's that going to come from? That's what typically would turn people conservative. But in this case, you've got a generation of people that they've trained to become reliant on the government, that they have misled, and they have their friends in the godless souls and slanderous news media that will take radical progressives and call them moderate. So they think, oh, it's just the norm. Can't take things for granted. Let's go to Jimmy in Brooklyn. Jimmy, go. Yeah, you're right about what you're saying. The movement is very strong and very powerful, the communist movement. They, they write about these things. For instance... Yesterday's left is today's center. Today's left will be tomorrow's center. So they're bragging how they moved the whole political spectrum to the left, where most people don't realize it. So somebody who's radical leftist, Marxist, today is mainstream. It's a mass movement. And something else you were talking about a few minutes ago, there's the Cloward Pivens thesis. These were two Marxists who wrote a thesis on how to collapse America from within by overwhelming the system. Have, have a lot of people unemployable, put everybody on welfare. You could do this and tear down cities and states. If you look at the cities that are controlled by the Democrats, the cities are, are collapsing. But if you collapse enough cities, you collapse the states. You collapse enough states, you collapse the country. So this is a war going on, and it's well thought out. It's well planned, just like when you leave your house and you ride on the highways and you cross the bridges. You take it for granted that they're there. Nobody stops to think that it took years and decades and decades of money and, and, and uh, engineers and all kind of architects, all kind of geniuses to build the roads and bridges to design them. Well, well said. the same way people well have been doing that for decades and 100-something 100, 100 years, the communists have been working like that for revolution. Playing the long game, and uh, the burn in particular is no young guy. Uh, I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd, love in. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. 
because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide. For example, through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools it's helping to found coast-to-coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. I'm used to senators telling mayors that senators are more important than mayors, but this is the arena, too. You don't have to be in Washington to matter. That's right. Small-town mayors are people, too. Us little guys. Here, can you imagine for 30 seconds? Mayor Pete, the, the small-town mayors are people, too, guy, and President Xi, you imagine how he would get his butt kicked, but the more important thing, our country would get its butt kicked? My gosh. <laughs> this guy. This guy. Here is President Trump. We heard by... All the the leftists, all the bigots, all the people in the godless holes and slanderous news media, everybody, oh, he's going to get his butt handed to him by China. He doesn't know what he's doing. So here we are. uh, And if you go all the way back, what did uh, you hear about China trade when President Trump was negotiating all the the trade deals originally? Oh, my gosh, these tariffs, they're going to kill us. You'll never be able to find uh, something that you can afford, uh, you know, at Walmart anymore. It's all going to be too expensive. It's going to crash the U.S. economy. Well, that didn't happen. What happened? The U.S. economy accelerated. Record prosperity, record incomes. The economy only got stronger when all that was taking place. Then what do they say? Well, you're never going to be able to get China to agree to a trade deal. They're just, you, no way. Well, President Trump gets them to agree to phase one of the China trade deal. Then what was the name? Oh, you're never, never going to be able to, to get them to, to follow through. They're, they're not going to actually, when it gets down to the time to exit, they're, they're not going to do it. Then what happened? Well, last Friday, we ended up seeing the tariffs taken down by the Chinese government on U.S. goods as part of phase one of the China trade deal. And not only that, but they've come back to the Trump administration, said, hey, you know what? That phase two. We should start talking about it. Now they're not even waiting until after the election. Now, my point is this. Contrast that with Mayor Pete. Small town mayors are people, too. It's a fascinating dichotomy. Politically, personalities, the realities on the ground, and your personal success, your personal freedom, your personal liberty, how much less of it you will have If these people have it their way with their policies, we're going to talk about how much less freedom that represents next. I'm Brian Mudd, and for the great one, Mark Levin. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. I can't think of a ways that would make it easier for Donald Trump to get reelected than listening to this conversation. This is ridiculous. 
We're not going to throw out capitalism. We tried that. Other countries tried that. It was called communism, and it just didn't work. Ooh, boo. Oh, we can't have any of your, you know, capitalism has become the C word in Democrat politics. Uh, they're, ooh, bad capitalism. And Amy Klobuchar, she even brought it up and she said, well, yes, uh, capitalism, but, which you always have to love. Uh, but there, there is no but, but, and, and uh, the response even in the room to that was like, <laughs> two people off stage. It is pretty messed up what's happening here. It's also pretty messed up what the Democrats that are running for president represent. But what happened last night was a great teachable moment that was on display for, thankfully, at least 20 million people to see. It's important that people become informed. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. I host the Morning Rush, WJNO in West Palm Beach. And then an hour after that show... I turn around and do the Brian Mudd Show for WIOD in Miami. Always an honor and a pleasure being here with you. And I just tweeted out to my now unverified Twitter account. for After five years, Twitter decided to unverify me. No explanation. But at Brian Mudd Radio is still me. And I just tweeted out a story that in empirical terms will give you numerical rankings of the Democrat candidates representing how much less freedom each of them will provide if they end up becoming president, and if they end up implementing their policies. So what really is is happening? As these Democrats are vying for president, the truth is finally coming out. You're finally seeing decades worth of a narrative in policies that's worthy. Don't, don't tell what's really going on here. Don't tell black families across this country that our goal is to try to separate them, to try to keep them in situations where they need government assistance, try to keep them poor. No, uh, instead, you have, because it's at any price necessary, the willingness for the truth to start coming out. And one of these areas of truth, beyond what you're hearing on the display, debate stage is actually written with a group indivisible and this is uh, the information i'm getting ready to share you uh, share with you what i tweeted out so they rank this activist organization each of the political candidates based upon how progressive their policies are and they've done this for quite some time including for president obama and what this ultimately represents just how much less freedom from where we are today each of them represent. Because let's start here. President Trump's rating, his progressive rating, the the number of times, the percentage of the time that he will choose progressive policies, that he will choose government over private solutions, zero. Zero. So in the grand scheme of capitalism, he would rank as a perfect capitalist. Now, everyone, the Democrats, represents something more progressive, something more interventionist, something more of a shift from you, from the private sector, to the government. But the question is, how much? Now, in the first hour, I broke down specifically Pete Buttigieg, his policies, 
that he answered and the score that he received. I'll give you an idea of this. Run through them real quick again. Pro reparations for the elimination of all private charter schools. No student loan debt. He wants free college, free puppies, free lollipops. No problem, right? Pay for all this stuff. He wants to abolish the electoral college for the restoration of felon voting rights without financial restitution for victims. For personal and corporate carbon taxes. Wants a published national gun registry. Wants no limits on abortion. Higher personal and corporate taxes across the board, aside from the carbon, just generally. So those are defined positions that netted him a score of 71. Now, when it comes to indivisible, their rating system, 100 would be perfect. So he's not perfect. That gives you an idea of just how radical the agendas are. But what Pete Buttigieg represents by virtue of those policies that are by no means moderate, no matter how much news media lies to you. That represents 71% less freedom, a 71% shift from the private sector, from you, the individual, from you being able to retain more of your money to use as you see fit to the government for them to take and implement all those things that he's espousing. So as we walk through the Democrat candidates, here's how much less freedom they represent. Joe Biden represents 40% less freedom than we currently have. His policies, as he has written them down and pledged, if implemented, would shift 40%, 40% of our existing economy away from you. And over to the government. And that is the most moderate, quote unquote, of the group. Next up, the other moderate you hear in the room, Amy Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar's policies, as the very sensible Midwestern woman that she is, would represent a 42% shift from where we are today to the government. Amy Klobuchar seeks government solutions over private sector solutions 42% of the time on average. And then I already mentioned that Mayor Pete was 71. So here's the first thing in the grand scheme of brass tacks and politics. Two sides to stories, one side of facts. You notice the divine there? I mean, look, Biden and Klobuchar represent much less freedom than we have right now. But they, in comparison to even Mayor Pete, look moderate. So as the media has been trying to conflate the idea of who's the moderate in the race, and after New Hampshire, they're going, ah, moderate Mayor Pete and moderate Amy Klobuchar are competing over how moderate and amazing they both can be. Uh, Not exactly. Not exactly. As progressive as Amy Klobuchar is, uh, Pete Buttigieg is way, way to the left of even her. Good old moderate Mayor Pete. Abortions at any point in the pregnancy for all. Free puppies in college for all. No electoral college ever. That guy. But then you get to our overt socialist. Our friend Pocahontas. Our native woman, Elizabeth Warren. 94%. And she represents 94% less freedom 
than what we have today with Donald Trump. 94% of the time presented with an option for a particular issue in which she could opt for the private sector, for individuals, or she could opt for the government. 94% of the time she says, government. And even that is outdone by, ah, yes, the burn. So Bernie Sanders, in terms of actual policies, hard-written ideas, what he pledges that he would do if he's president of the United States, 97% less freedom, 97% more reliance on the government than what we have right now with Donald Trump. Now, think about that for a moment. Think about decisions you make in your everyday life. First and foremost, do you make 97% of any of your decisions for one specific direction at, you know, one type of ideology always and forever? I mean, that in and of itself is saying something. I mean, that's pretty darn pure. But when you're talking about, hey, you know what? I could choose between individuals. Or I could choose between the government. Who do I want to handle this? Someone who, uh, you know, I, me or someone I trust, someone I feel good about, business, free enterprise, or a bureaucrat, government. Imagine if 97% of the time you went for the government. But that's Bernie Sanders. And that's how much less freedom is on display with these Democrats. Now, Bloomberg was not scored by indivisible, but when you take a look at what he has pledged to other organizations in terms of policy, he most closely aligns with Klobuchar. So he's somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% less freedom. So you kind of have, you know, a a set of three. You have Klobuchar, Biden, and uh, Bloomberg, and then you've got Buttigieg, Warren, and Sanders. So you have the, uh, those that are in favor of much less freedom and those who are absolute radicals who want the government to control most everything in our lives. And that's what's really on display in these debates. The contrast over how much less freedom you should have, how much more of your money, how much more of our future should go to the hands of government. Now, it'll never be brought to you in these terms because the progressive activists want to tell their other progressive activists where their candidates stand. The candidates themselves, this side of Bernie Sanders, are not necessarily so open about all these positions. But there are realities. There are facts. There are things that need to be known because this is all very real. And again, I caution against anyone who simply will say, you know what, Bernie Sanders, you know, if you're a Trump, so I hope it's Bernie Sanders because, man, if he is the president... Trump's just going to clean up. But what if he doesn't? But what if he doesn't? Is 97% less freedom acceptable to you? One of the the things that I'm always very careful about, this is true of every election, everyone, local to federal, I always want the best possible candidates all the way around because somebody always wins. And the stakes are too great. When we're talking about... Where we are today with record prosperity, record opportunity, and 97% less personal freedom economically, 97% of decisions made in favor of government control over us, 
That's not okay. That's not a viable option. That's not the United States of America. And none, none of these candidates are moderates. Not when the most moderate would take 40% of everything as it sits right now and turn it over to the federal government. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mud Lovin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. A very few non-disclosure agreements. Uh, how many is that? Let me there? finish. How many is that? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just put, and let me put, there's a be, agreements between two parties that wanted to keep it quiet, and that's up to them. Oh, I could think about Bloomberg's, Bloomberg's binders full of women. <laughs> a little bit different than Romney's. Oh, but Bloomberg's got his uh, his binders full of nine disclosure women as well. All right, so look, uh, it, these Dems, the debate. Brian Mudd in for the uh, the great one, Mark Levin. Teachable moments uh, on display. So if you're just catching up, walking through what these Democrats actually represent, because one of the things that often we don't talk about opportunity cost of decisions. People tend not to really really boil it down to, okay, here's where I am in my life. And here is what a particular candidate would represent that is different from where I sit right now. So through the research that provided, and if you want this story, I tweeted it out at Brian Mudd Radio on Twitter. You can go grab it, take read, share. We're able to see that essentially Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, Michael Bloomberg, they represent 40% give or take, less freedom, less economic and personal freedom from where we are today with Donald Trump based upon how much they would take and hand to the government and how much less money we would have due to higher taxes that would account for what they want to give to the government. Then you have Mayor Pete, who would represent about 71% more control for the government. And then Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, they're almost all the way there. Well over 90% less personal and economic freedom. That would choose the government almost 100 times out of 100 over personal solutions. Now, here's what's interesting in the context of this conversation. There's one person in particular that I haven't given you the indivisible score for. It's Barack Obama. Where in the grand scheme of... 
leftist, of Marxist policies, of socialism? Where do you think Barack Obama ranked? I mean, just think about how big, when he was able to get his way, he went. The first major step, turning over the healthcare industry to the government. Eh, big step. He didn't go Medicare for all, but he took the big leap. Very close. He was a 66. 66% of the time, Barack Obama chose government over you. And here we are with Pete Buttigieg, even to the left of Obama, and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, substantially so. That's what these people represent. This isn't even the party of Barack Obama anymore, who two-thirds of the time would choose the government over you. But here's something else that it is doing. The redistributive properties of these policies, all of them, right down to you know the Bidens, Klobuchar's, and, and Bloomberg's, that would still go for 40% more government than Trump. Overall efficiency. How efficient is the government relative to us? Well, i got a couple ways to be able to look at that as well. And we're going to take a look at them in just a few. First, I want to tell you the uh, great one. The reason he's not here with us right now, and I am here with you, he's on an incredible assignment. He is in Israel, and he's getting ready for a Fox News special, a Life, Liberty, and Levin special with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, this is uh, 8 o'clock Sunday, the Fox News channel. So if you do not, if you do not already record the show, hit up your DVR as soon as it's safe to do so. Eight o'clock Sunday evenings, record every one of them, and uh, make sure you do not miss Life, Liberty, and Levin, the Great One with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And I am Brian Mudd, in for the Great One, Mark Levin. Mark Levin, speaking to the four out of five Americans who are literate at 877-381-3811. I hear he's getting pounded tonight. You know he's in a debate. I hear they're pounding him. How many Mike taking the beating? Yeah, sure enough, he was. Uh, He said the C word. How dare he? Capitalism? This is a Democrat debate. Don't you know that we are a bunch of progressives here we are really all democratic socialists when it gets down to it brian mudd in for the uh, great one mark levin and throughout the course of the show so far been bringing you the information about in an empirical terms in numerical terms what each of these democrat candidates represent in terms of taking our country today and handing it over to the government it's all substantial and one thing that no country has ever necessarily, or, or no empire has necessarily ever thought at the absolute peak of its prosperity is that they're going to collapse, right? Think about it. Every world superpower, every one of them, collapsed. Why? What was it? And you can go through every single scenario and you can find that pivot point where it happened. And the biggest mistake that we can run into as we sit here with record prosperity, record opportunity, record incomes, those that are at the lowest end of the socioeconomic spectrum performing the best on a relative basis in this economy. 
and taking it for granted. Because what you see on display on that stage represents the literal opposite of where we are today and represents what could be that pivot point, that collapse. And it's our responsibility always not to let it happen on our watch. You know, sometimes in our country's history, we fought wars. Right now, this is the battle. It's about information. You have your godless souls and slanderous news media that works as an arm of the Democrat Party. You have the Democrat Party that is really nothing more than socialist light and socialist all the way. And you have an opportunity to show that capitalism works. Why is it that we have record prosperity today and not when Barack Obama was president? Why is it that minority unemployment didn't reach a record low with Barack Obama, but it has under Donald Trump? Why is it that the average growth rate of the Obama economy was 1.8%. And why was it that he was the first president in American history to serve at least a full term and not have even an average U.S. economy of 3%? Why was it that his last year economy, because you might recall that Obama was tweeting out over the weekend about his economic policies, and basically he's responsible for this, well, once again, two signs of stories, one set of facts. You know, the last year, his economy, his average economy is 1.8%. Sucks. Not even enough to keep up with inflation. That's why the average person felt backwards. Affordable Care Act. Healthcare is 90% more expensive eight years later. When you take a look at his growth rate in his final year in office, it was 1.6%. So even by Obama suck standards, the economy was worse. That's what Donald Trump inherited, a 1.6 growth economy. Now, what has he done? Well, he's only averaged an economy growing at 2.6% today. In fact, our economy has only had one quarter since he's been president that had a growth rate that was as low as the average of the Obama years. Why is that? The problem when you have prosperity and you have ignorant people and you have those that are selling all of these you know, free puppies for everybody is they can easily be lured away. And they can be made to, to think that any of it is possible and you know, it's going to be good no matter what and it can even be better without realizing that it represents the antithesis of the opportunity they have today, the prosperity they have today. And I've got a bit more on the difference between government and the private sector. What it represents to have the government help you and what it represents to have, say, a charity help you. Get to that in a few. But first, Jim. Uh, Jim in Grand Junction, Colorado. Go. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Listen, there's something that a lot of people aren't talking about. In fact, I haven't heard anybody talk about it. There's a, a an existing model of free stuff that's functioning right now, free health care available through Medicaid. If you go to any hospital, any emergency room, and ask them if it's overutilized by uh, Medicaid patients and taxing the system, 
they will tell you, yes, it is, and I'll show you the numbers. I was involved in healthcare for over 20 years, and we saw that happen over and over again. If you take that same model and apply it to free college for all, I, I can guarantee you there will be people who will take advantage of it, but they'll just do it to, to say they did it. They might change majors while they're trying to find themselves. You know, we're all going to pay the bill, and in the end, they'll drop out. The system will have been overburdened, and, of course, we're going to pay for it because that money's not going to just fall out of the sky. So that's this something is, I'd like to hear somebody address. This is the perfect opportunity, actually, to seg into what I was going to mention about the difference between the private sector and the public sector doing your bidding for you. So Medicaid. It's interesting. Uh, in Florida, one of the debates that's been going on, my home state, we're one of the 17 states that hasn't accepted the expansion of Medicaid under the Not-So-Affordable Care Act. And there's been endless pressure to do it. Oh, you don't care about the poor. You Republicans in Florida. That's what contains. Well, there's a funny thing about it. It happens to be the number one expense in this state. And while I haven't studied this in every state across the country, stands to reason a similar outcome would be true. One out of every $3 the state of Florida pays out goes to Medicaid. One out of every three. You know what our unemployment rate is here? It's 3%. Now, you have an unemployment rate of 3%. We're already paying out one of, out of every $3, and we haven't even accepted the expansion that after three years the state is completely liable for. Now, what does that tell you? It, it tells you that something's not quite right. And when I took a look at it, well, guess what? The model for Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, you can earn, in some cases, up to three times the poverty level. And still be on Medicaid. Why? Because remember, what is the Marxist agenda about? What is socialism really about? What is the Democrat Party really about? They need to get you on government programs because it's the only way they can control you. Medicaid is one of those ways. Is that a safety net? When you can be multiples of the poverty level and still on it? Not quite, right? But if you're on it, are you going to want to lose it? Not exactly, right? So what is it you're going to have to do? Well, make sure you don't leave your current lot in life. They make it so you can just be unsuccessful enough to be comfortable and to get your free stuff. Paid for by everybody else, of course. But they never want you to become more successful than that. Because they can't control you anymore. Then you become one of the people that's actually paying taxes to the other people that have been trained and conditioned to live on the system. And one of the things that is critical that as conservatives we do is that we are truly informative about what compassion is. Compassion is not reliance on government programs. That's the opposite of compassion. Compassion is wanting you to have every opportunity for you to be as successful as you possibly can be, given the willingness that you have to carry out whatever your vision is. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And every last dollar that shifts from us to the government takes away more of that freedom. That's what these Democrats represent. And again, in very empirical and specific and numerical terms, 
they represent anywhere anywhere from 40% to 97% less freedom. But about that model you're talking about, Medicaid is a reasonable example, uh, even as, especially when you, you get the feds involved in it. So, you know, a lot of, most of the money collected at the state level, you got bureaucrats there, but then you have certainly the federal government that plays its role. And if you have a state that has taken the expansion, here's the way that government over private solutions work. The average charity in this country, you know what the efficiency rating is? The average accredited charity. It's 80%. If you just kind of like throw darts at a dartboard with charities' names on there and you, you hit one of them, 80 cents on the dollar is going to go to whatever the mission of that charity is. The best ones do better than that. That's an average. You go to like Charity Navigator, for example, a good place to go. And you can see very specifically what is the numerical ranking in any number of different, different areas, including how much of the money actually gets to where uh, you know, it's supposed to go with their vision. You know who doesn't have one of those rankings? Your federal government. Why does the, the federal government not exactly have one? Well, I calculated this out. And, uh, you know, it, granted, it's been several years now. But I, I'm sure that our federal government has become much more efficient since then. You know what the, uh, the average efficiency rating is for federal government assistance? Remember, it's 80% for your average charity. Not the best ones, the average charities. 18%. 18%. That's right. 82 cents on the dollar dies in bureaucracy versus 80 cents with your average private solution. Now, how does that happen? It's common sense. Again, information. It's important. What happens if you donate directly to a charity? It goes to the charity. Do they have overhead costs? Yes. Okay, so that comes out of it. And there you go. Now, what happens when the government, we're the federal government, and we're here to help you? Well, okay, so your tax money goes where? Well, first it goes to the Treasury, right? Okay, so first, bureaucracy. You have the overhead of the Treasury Department. Now, what happens once it gets to Treasury? Well, now it's got to go to whatever the federal agency is that is here to help you. Your friend, Uncle Sam, and all of his friends that are Sam's associates at the next government bureaucracy. So gets transferred from Treasury to bureaucracy behind door number two. That eats up more of that money. And then what has to happen from that federal bureaucracy? Well, that doesn't go straight to your door, no. Now it's got to go to, if we're using a Medicaid example, well, now it's got to go to the state. And by the way, for any federal government assistance program, it's pretty much the same model. It goes to the state, right? And then what happens? You know, if we're, if we're talking about a community assistance program, well, it hasn't just been chewed up by the Treasury Department and by whatever the governing bureaucracy is over whatever the assistance area uh, happens to be. Now you got the state bureaucracy that gets their cut of the action, more overhead, and then they've got it directed to a local government agency. And then the local government agency has their overhead, and maybe they provide the service to you based upon what assistance program we're talking about, or maybe they actually go to the charity with that 80% efficiency rating on average to begin with and have them do it. 
That is your government model. But again, once you're on it, they control you. And that's the only reason that it would ever make sense to vote for these people is if you're already controlled by them. And what they've been doing, controlling the minds of the past few generations through the public education establishment to try to convince them of all these things that make sense. We're just the government. We're here to help. Not to illustrate the point the way I just did, not just to provide the facts that, you know what, you could help somebody a hell of a lot more if you simply go directly to an organization in your community that's there to help versus having the government do it for you. No, I mean, that's somehow it's going to work in their world. And you have to ask yourself, how compassionate is that really? Because isn't that the real true test of compassionate liberalism as it's been projected on our kids? Being compassionate. Nothing compassionate about that. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd in. The state of California can no longer treat homelessness and housing insecurity as someone else's problem. Buried below, you know, other priorities that are much easier to win or better suited for sound bites. It's our responsibility, and it must be the top of our agenda. Yeah, yeah. We've got to solve the housing insecurity. Gavin Newsom, the governor of the one-time Golden State. Now it's the state of Mr. Hankey with Nancy Pelosi representing the District of San Francisco. We've got to solve the crisis. you got to love the good progressives because they create the crisis so they can come in and solve it for you. But there is a really great solution. See, we're going to get all the progressives working together here to solve the issue. And we're going to start with the redistribution of Bernie's houses. Obviously, Bernie has three. Who needs three houses? We have housing insecurity in California. So all we're going to need to do is just redistribute a couple of the Burns houses. And that's where we can start solving the problem. But I am glad that uh, finally the poo on the streets has become enough. That Gavin Newsom, he cares. We can solve these problems together that we create for you. Let's go to Luke. Luke, go. Yeah, hi. Um, I hope you. All I have is a speaker on speaker. I hope you can hear me, okay? We got you. Can you hear? Me? Yeah. Can you hear me? You're yeah. good. Okay. Nope. So, um, what I wanted to say was, I think you know, America still has more opportunity than any other place in the world. You know, as long as the, as the liberals don't keep interfering with it and destroying it, I think Trump's agenda continues to expand that opportunity. And what I wanted to say also was, I watched my wife make a plan. She got her bachelor's, her master's, and her doctorate. She got her master's and her doctorate while she was undergoing. This was after she had both of her beautiful breasts removed from breast cancer, underwent chemo and radiation, and and got her doctorate uh, because she had a plan. She worked hard. Um, and I think if, if people stay off of drugs and they make pretty good decisions and they work hard, I think there's lots of opportunity you know amen um, 
And God bless yeah, you and, and your wife. I mean, that's, that right there is a story unto itself. But that's what this country represents. And that's what this current economy represents. And it's something that is different and that can be illustrated. We have not had this kind of prosperity before. So teach. Teach your kids. Let people know. Because every empire, they've fallen. And the reason why? Because they do something stupid. Like burning. Brian Mudd in for the great one. Mark Levin. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, this final hour of the podcast is sponsored exclusively by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we care about, faith, family, and freedom. Thank you for listening, and please support AMAC. And you can become a member at amac.us slash join. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post in the bowels of a hidden bunker somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building we've once again made contact with our leader Mark Levin I'm the only one on this stage that actually got anything done on health care okay I'm the guy the president turned to and said go get the votes for Obamacare and I noticed what everybody's talking about is the plan that I first introduced this Joe Biden quite literally said, I was the muscle. You know, I was the muscle. Come on. There were senators. They didn't want to vote for it. I was the muscle. I went in there and I said, hey, you know what happens to people who don't go along with us? You know how some people, they go missing. You know, cars on the side. Oh, wait, that was the Clintons. Uh, wait, you don't want to end up like them. We'll do it too. So Biden is the muscle. And uh, you can also thank him for your health care being 90% more expensive today than it was before the Not-So-Affordable Care Act was passed with his muscle, of course. Thank you for, for doing that. Uh, and all the uh, mysterious uh, occurrences of, of people who we do find, uh, you know, sometimes mugged when they're uh, you know, shot in the back and streets outside the Capitol. The, these types of – the muscle, Joe Biden – uh, Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. I host the Morning Rush WJNO in West Palm Beach, the Brian Mudd Show WIOD in Miami. Always an honor and a privilege to be here. Uh, guest hosting for the great one, Mark Levin. And I am really excited for what he is up to right now. Uh, he is in Israel working on a special Life, Liberty, and Levin for the Fox News Channel coming up 8 o'clock Sunday. And uh, you right now, or whenever it is safe, if you're in your car, as soon as you can. If you haven't already, record Life, Liberty, and Live In. Just set up on your DVR. If you catch it live, 8 o'clock Sunday is great. If you don't, well, uh, then uh, you, you got it whenever you want to. Now, when you talk about the impact of policy, what I've done uh, throughout the course of the first couple hours tonight is, is walk you through very specific terms. What these candidates, what the Democrats represent relative to what we have today. Numerical rankings of our president, who, according to a leading progressive activist organization, chooses private solutions every time over government solutions given the opportunity, represents freedom. 
represents maximum opportunity for us, which probably is why, despite every effort to undermine his administration, we are experiencing record low unemployment for every minority group, record high wages across the board, the greatest benefit being with those at the lowest end of the socioeconomic spectrum, record high retirement account balances, record opportunity in the workplace, because it's somebody who chooses you over government. And then watch you through how, based upon your, your choice of the progressives on the Marxist scale, they represent anywhere from 40 to 97% less freedom. 40 to 97% more government in our lives, paid for with the money they want to confiscate to pay for all those things. And again, that story, uh, at the uh, I have it posted, my, my Twitter account, at Brian Mudd Radio on Twitter, had been verified for five years. For some reason, uh, guest hosting this show two weeks ago today, it actually became unverified. No explanation from Twitter, but it has not been hijacked. It is still me, at Brian Mudd Radio. But you can get that story. You can take, read, and share the specific breakdown of each of the candidates. But the other thing, you know, the, the teachable moments about health care. So the, the Affordable Care Act actually is a good one because the greatest misnomer when it comes to health care is that you need insurance. Truth be told, the greatest obstacle to health care is insurance. The biggest failure of the Affordable Care Act it wasn't what generally is associated with it, which is, you know, just a, the government mandate that the president has you know, worked to usurp to a certain degree through executive action. But it wasn't even that aspect of it. The greatest failure of the Affordable Care Act is that it took the single most important function in our society and further removed it. And that's us. Consumer price transparency. You know, the, the, the bat crap crazy thing that we have been conditioned to do, going into a medical service provider's room, having no flipping clue what's going to happen the moment we walk through those doors, but signing a piece of paper that says, you know what, whatever happens through those doors and however much it costs, which even if I ask you half the time you can't tell me, and whatever my insurance company Pays, which I also have no idea, and you would not be able to tell me. Whatever at the end of that entire experience is left, I got you. I got this covered. That's nuts. Because we would never walk into even a department store or even Walmart where you know that even if you fill up the cart, it's not going to cost you thousands upon thousands of dollars. We, we would never walk in there and say, all right, we're just going to fill up the cart. We have no idea what anything costs, but we got to, well, whatever we, you say we pay, we do. We are amazing consumers, given the opportunity. And the biggest obstacle was something like government overreach. And remember, this isn't Medi Medicare for all. This is the first big step in that direction. But it's big government saying that you've got to have this thing. That takes you out of the equation. That removes your ability to see what healthcare actually costs. It removes your decision making and replaces it with a bureaucrat and an insurance company, along with a medical service provider. Because how often is care 
only provided or you make a decision about what care will be provided based upon whether they say they're going to cover it or not, even when you don't even know what it's going to cost. That's what happens incrementally when you choose less freedom. So, yes, the difference between a uh, Joe Biden, the muscle, as it were, behind the Affordable Care Act, and a Bernie Sanders might be more incrementalism and less freedom for you to, to see and to choose more Affordable Care Act-like policies and not out-and-out socialism in its purest form like Bernie. But it's all on the sliding scale of everything that has not made this country successful. The number one reason why healthcare is 90% more expensive today than it was back then is because we have less transparency in the process than we had back then. And what ends up happening? Well, for 42 million Americans on an annualized basis, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, who happen to be fans of the Affordable Care Act because they want you engaged in the system, 42 million Americans who pay for health insurance at an average gross cost of $8,500 per year. So that's what an employer might pay for. That's what you pay $8,500 for an insurance. 42 million people who pay out that kind of money never have health care because they can't afford to by the time they get done paying 8500 bucks for a policy. and what are often high deductibles that go along with it. Now, wouldn't we be better off? I can tell you 42 million people would be. If rather than having that insurance policy, you actually had $8,500 to pay for the health care, don't you think you might be able to personally negotiate a better rate than having to go through an insurance company? This is but one example, but it's one example that the left consistently confuses, misleads, and tries to win on because it's health care. But it's not what the compassionate solution is. The compassionate solution is you being able to access your physician, your health care with your resources. And then insurance. There's a place for health insurance, just like it is everything else in our lives. So in this example... If you have something simple that ends up needing to be serviced on your car, what do you do? Do you file an insurance claim or do you take it to the mechanic and, and get it fixed? Now, if you get in a car accident of significance, do you file an insurance claim? Probably. That's the difference. So, in the case of medicine, for the average person, the average way that you go about your year, would you not be substantially better off if you just paid for your health care, whatever it is, out of pocket? If you just had these conversations directly with physicians on what things would cost, could make informed decisions, just like we do anything else in the consumer mar marketplace. But then if you find out, you know what, I have a big issue here. It's going to cost a lot of money. I'm going to file an insurance claim. Don't you think we'd be better off that way rather than running everything through the bureaucracy? See, this is an example of the bastardized private sector with incremental socialism and even involving politicians that are running for president right now 
and how it negatively impacts your everyday life. How it makes something as important as healthcare seem like they're doing something compassionate by you while they're actually screwing you. And what are they doing? Once again, the less that you have personally, the more control they have over you because they have you convinced that if we don't have the Affordable Care Act, if it's not mandated, then you don't have health care. When again, health insurance is demonstrably for tens of millions of Americans the greatest obstacle to the health care they really want to be able to afford. Got plenty of other examples, but we're going to illustrate how this administration, breaking down some of those barriers and the difference that it's making in a positive way in our lives. Talk about that coming up next. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd in. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead, A-M-A-C dot U-S. On day one, when I'm elected president, I'm going to invite all of the members of the Paris Accord to Washington, D.C. They make up 85% of the problem. They know me. I'm used to dealing with international relations. Damn straight. Day one. Day one. Paris Climate Accord countries. Yeah. You know, there's a a lot of talk about the uh, 1% on the left. In this particular case, uh, Biden is making an appeal to to 1%. For, for if you're the person who sits in the, the corner and you go, climate accord, climate accord, climate accord, Trump, climate accord. Now you know who you're got. I mean, this is it. Day one. Day one. He's got you. Yeah, we're going to invite the Paris climate accord countries and, and that's going to happen. <laughs> I mean... Talk about having your finger on the pulse of a lot of things. But he is the muscle. He is the muscle. He knows how to uh, rough up the booty judge, for example. I mean, he could he could be good at that. Uh, so, look. Grand scheme of things, Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. There's a lot that we need to be mindful of. And there's a lot at stake in the election. It, it's always said and overstated that this happens to be that important of an election. But take a look at the grand scheme of things, at where we are today. Take a look at what these policies represent and take a look at the risk if things go south. And it's why I say even to conservatives, don't take for granted 
the candidates on the left. I will never feel comfortable hearing somebody say, yeah, you know what? I want crazy Bernie to get the nomination because he'll be easy to beat and he'll help Dell and ballot. You know what? Maybe, maybe. But what happens if he wins? Again, they're all progressives. They all represent a significant redistribution of this economy to the government. But some things you have a chance of recovering from and other, other things you don't. Be careful what you wish for. Remember, the Democrats, they wish for Trump. Now, I mentioned there's some positive things going on. Talking about the Affordable Care Act, talking about, uh, you know, the that type of po- – why is it we haven't? Well, beyond Barack Obama, beyond the muscle of Joe Biden and the uh, 60 Democrats they had to be able to vote for it, it was uh, the court, right? The, the whole court system, right down to our good old Chief Justice, John Roberts, who said, yeah, you know what, this – Affordable Care Act, it is wholly constitutional. But, you know, silly politicians, they just made a little error. You know, yes, this is not lawful. But if we just rewrite their legislation and we call it a tax, I'm sure that's what they meant. Now it's now it's just fine. Judicial activism, right? Reshaping these courts, one of the most important things for any president, but especially this one. And Donald Trump. He's on a record pace. Give you an idea of where we stand. You hear this every so often about record judges, but let me put it in context. There are 870 federal just, justices that are uh, potentially in play for any president. There are 870 all in that are nominated by a president. As of right now, 192 federal judges have been confirmed. That's already under President Trump, 22% of the entire federal footprint. Now, three years. By comparison, Obama, he had 334 confirmations during his entire eight-year term. Were Trump to keep this pace up, he would have an opportunity to confirm more than 500 federal judges, which, by the way, would be a record. Reagan holds the current record of 402 confirmations, which just as an aside, pretty remarkable when you think about it, because Democrats controlled the Senate that entire time. Gives you an idea of lay of the land then versus now and also the influence of Reagan as president. But that's the good news, the reshaping of the judiciary and the ultimate hope that we have constitutionalists rather than activists. And it's also a reminder that you can't take even the nominations for granted when it's a Republican. Because remember, how did we get the activist Chief Justice John Roberts? Bush. How did we get Anthony Kennedy? Yeah, that was a Reagan appointment too. So we always have to be informed in holding their feet to the fire and being involved with our politicians that provide information to, say, the president about court nominations. They're all important. And I'll give you an idea coming up of just how important it can be, something as significant and fundamental as voting rights. Take your calls as well. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one, Mark Levin. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest-growing organizations in America, now over 2 million conservative members strong, 
and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. Mark Levin, making conservatism great again. Dial in now, 877-381-3811. The DNC is going to take it away from Bernie again, and that's okay, because we don't care who the hell it is. We're going to win. We're going to win. We have to. It's the kind of stuff you really can't make up. Brian Mudd in for the uh, great one, Mark Levin. Think about this for a second. So 2016, you have the entire situation during the Democrats' process in which superdelegates had already decided the states. So you would have the elections that would take place in whatever the the state happened to be, and you knew going in, no matter what, Hillary Clinton would win more delegates because they had already been allocated through their superdelegate process. Now, because of those allegations along with even that part of the rigging process for the Democrats still not being enough. You had, of course, things like uh, good old Donna Brazil, CNN, I got you back. I'm just going to slide you the uh, debate questions before the debate, and uh, you got this one, right? So, uh, you know, along those lines, with everything we've learned, the, the process rigged. Okay, so Democrats have to address this. Here we are. It's the next cycle. And you've got Bernie Sanders again. It's the kind of stuff you can't make up. Now, they say that they have been all altruistic at the DNC about this. So the only time that superdelegates are going to come into play at all is if there is a contested convention. Okay. Now, seeing the view of the possible, one thing that did end up happening is you did have the Clinton people, the Clintonites, the DNC establishment of her era. You know, Tom Perez chairman of the DNC, he's one of them too. You did have them stack the deck at the convention. If it gets there, oh, that'll, and you get the popcorn ready. But here's the next piece. You can't make up what's happening. We have Bernie Sanders first in Iowa. He wins more votes than Pete Buttigieg on that first go-round. Thousands of more votes. There's a second round of votes at the Iowa caucus. He wins by thousands of votes again. So naturally, who comes out? The leader in Iowa? Well, people to judge. And delegate equivalents. And don't ask too many questions what that is. And no, we still don't have actual confirmed results. And yes, 
The Sanders camp is asking for at least a partial recount in Iowa, which I have no doubt will show that he won the most votes. Every count has. But Pete has more delegates coming out of Iowa. And then you have New Hampshire. So Bernie Sanders wins more votes in New Hampshire. He wins the state. So what does he get? The same number of pledged delegates as Pete Buttigieg. So through two states, you have Bernie Sanders having received more votes than any Democrat in both of them and trailing people to judge and pledge delegates. It's the kind of stuff you can't make up. I mean, President Trump is right. Oh, it's fascinating. All right, let's go to Dave. Dave in Auburn, California. Go. Yes, uh, I'm from California. In regards to the homeless problem here, uh, You know, I'll preface my point by saying, you know, I've got compassion for the homeless, tried to help them out, particularly the veterans. But my point is, is not only is it hard to separate those that are truly in need from those gaming the system, but who's from out of state? Uh, You know, set up camp where you want, handouts, lawlessness, and the free-flowing of drugs. Uh, You know, the question becomes, is it truly an exclusively California problem, or is this the modern-day gold rush? And in that case, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic that, you know, perhaps our government creates the problem and then declares it a crisis that we have to solve. And uh, that's a question on a lot of our minds here. We, you know, I'd kind of like to see a census of some type. As a matter of fact, I've heard people are even coming from Europe to California. Well, yeah, well I was uh, going to say, uh, out of state, Dave, I mean, shoot. The first-class citizens in your state are the ones that are out of the country, especially if they're illegal. I mean, they go to the front of the line. You can avoid as much prosecution as you want and get uh, you know free puppies and goodies from everybody uh, paid for by people like you in the state. And in census, oh, you're going to get that too. See, you know, not to be underestimated here, uh, this is something that should be talked about and rarely, if ever, has even been uh, you know uh, brought up as a potential reason as to why california has done this to itself now somewhere along the way you got to imagine that even nancy pelosi goes you know what poo on the sidewalk outside my house not exactly what i'm gunning for here so why is it that it actually is the truth why is it that there actually has been like poo in the streets a block away from nancy pelosi's house well it's an interesting dynamic we have the census so here we are in a census here now, because the census under the Constitution states that persons, not citizens, may be counted, see, states like yours that have gone all sanctuary on us, that have decided uh, that, uh, hey, we're going we're, we're to take all comers, could it be, could it be that part of the strategy, part of the reason that uh, up to this point we've tolerated poo on the streets is because that's, that person pooping on the streets that's still somebody we can get counted in this district. That means that we have more influence in Congress. That means that we will get more of the federal tax dollars from the rest of the country. And that means that the state of California will have more electoral college votes to control the outcome of future presidential elections. There's every motivation, every last motivation for them to do that. And it's something they have fought like hell for. I mean, they fought like hell to keep the quote-unquote citizen question off of the census. Even though the only census since the third carried out in this country's history, 
the only census that did not have any citizenship question is the most recent one, 2010. Every other census in American history had some incarnation of a quote-unquote citizenship question carried out on at least some of the ballots. But why is it that we couldn't even have that this time around? Why is it that we had to get our courts to to go along with an area of, it says persons, you know what that means, and if you say citizenship, uh, any, that, that's bad. Why? Well, because that would negate this entire strategy. You think, you think that we have tolerated poo on our streets? You think that I've smelled that stuff when I'm walking in my door? For nothing? We're getting our extra persons counted. We're getting our extra congressional districts in California. We're getting our extra electoral college votes from the other states. That's happening. That's what we've done this for. Now, right along, I thought that's been part of the strategy. And uh, don't discount it. Don't discount it. Let's go to Sean in Kansas City. Sean, go. Yes, sir. Hi. Hey, Brian. Uh, first of all, pleasure to talk to you. It's great hearing from you. Uh, Thank God you. bless you and, and Mark and God bless the president right now. Amen. Um, I, I could talk to you for hours, man, about what you were just talking about. Uh, but, but to stick to the point that I called about, uh, something occurred to me, I was, I left work today and I was on my way to pick up my daughter. And I was just sitting there thinking about these debates, not, not for any reasons peripherally because I couldn't care less about them, but I, I heard some of the sound bites. And I was like, man, you know, these, these people, forgive the dog, uh, these people, uh, when they're pushed against the wall against these morons that are debating against the other moron, Bernie Sanders, they are, Literally, get when they're back against the wall, they, their responses are more conservative. I think sometimes, you know, e- even in the even in a minuscule sense, than they even realize or they give credit for. And so, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sean. I, I ask myself, like, how can you be even a billionaire? How can you get to the point in your life where you don't even see the reality of what's going on around you to the point where you 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 look at the the the, the uh, the program, I'm a, I'm a jarhead. I served from 2000 to 2004. I was in uh, Ramadi in summer of 2004. God bless you. Thank I, you for your service. Uh, God bless you guys. No, my pleasure. I, but but, but I, I see this, and I'm like, I know what programming is as a Marine. It's necessary programming in that sense, and I don't say that in a negative way for the Marine Corps. God, God love the Marine Corps. Save my life. But, but the programming that they have is so sick. It's so deep. That when they're confronted with something that is the antithesis of any kind of freedom, which is what Bernie is peddling, they they don't even realize, and of course the media is not even going to uh, display this. And they're complicit. That, that, that they are genuinely giving mildly, if, if at best, conservative responses to this guy. So, uh, Sean, you, you, no, you, you're you're good. I, you, your your point is accurate in a couple of illustrative ways. You know, the, the first is how we live our lives. You know, one of the things that's really remarkable about Bernie Sanders and his three houses, for example, is how similar in that example of the debate, he lives his life to say a Michael Bloomberg and his situation. I mean, there, there comes a point to where there's wealth, there's comfort above wealth, and then there is, I mean, just silly money. 
So obviously, there's pretty much nothing that Bloomberg can do, ever. And you got Bernie, the overt socialist, that is in the the wealthy-to-comfortable category with his multiple houses wherever he wants them, including having southern camps, which, as we learned, apparently is what Vermont Vermonteers uh, do. You you have a southern camp. So uh, that that is the class with which our, our leading socialist does does live. The point is this. We are all, based upon our life circumstances, where we are socioeconomically, we all live our lives pretty much the same way, regardless of what we think. You know, the average person still gets up every day and goes to work trying to provide for their family. This is true whether you make 40000 a year or you make 400000 a year. You go to work, try to do the best you can at your job, and uh, you're trying to provide for your kids best that you can. And then at the end of it all, you hope that you have an opportunity to see it all come together and enjoy yourself somewhere along the way. Maybe write it down whatever your vision of retirement is. There's always going to be more that way that unites us than divides us. And what you're seeing, and it's part of the reason that I illustrated in very specific and numerical terms early in the show, who these people, what these people are, there is actually a vast difference between a Bernie Sanders and a Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders does represent 57% less freedom than Joe Biden, and nearly as much with Bloomberg and, and Klobuchar. And so there is a difference there. They, all of them, much less freedom than what we have right now. They do want to shift uh, your money and our personal freedom from where it is today, anywhere from 40 to 97% over to the government. But within that difference that is vast, that's where you're seeing some of these views espoused that do sound almost conservative by comparison. Because, yes, when you have somebody like a Bernie Sanders who lives his life more like Michael Bloomberg, and for that matter, Donald Trump, than not, uh, you, what, what you ultimately get when he's espousing overt socialism, almost a complete turnover of our society to the federal government, you're going to have anything sound conservative, so to speak, that isn't that. And it's all part of how the progressive agenda has incrementally worked over the course of time. Again, this is decades in the making. I mean, you can go back to Woodrow Wilson, but think about this. Government assistance programs. How many of them did we have before FDR? Um, the answer? Zero. We went all the way to 1913 without having a permanent federal income tax. Why? We became the world's leading superpower with essentially, for the, almost the entirety of our country's history, no permanent federal income tax and no social programs. Think about that one. This is when it all began. They couldn't, if we all had that prosperity, have the control over us to be able to put this to work in a way that would control votes for generations to come. It's the long game. They've all been playing it. Bernie's been working at it an awfully long time. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd Lovin'.
AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. Washington Democrats keep on losing their minds. They hate the fact that we're winning. We're winning big. We're winning, winning, winning. Oh, no doubt. And Brian on in for the great one, Mark Levin. And I'm going to leave you with some analytical positivity. So it is a given that President Trump will be the Republican nominee, right? So you don't really need to go out there and vote for him. And you probably have even heard about some of the turnout stuff. And it's been good. But in context, how good has it been? Well, okay, so it, it was true that Obama, eight years ago, fait complete. He was going to be the Democrats' nominee. So this makes a pretty good cross-section to be able to compare the first couple of states that have voted. When you take a look at the, uh, the last time that we really had a party nominee who was not the likely or, or at least had a horse race involved in, in terms of becoming their party's nominee – uh, though you would have to go back to 80 uh, when Ted Kennedy made the run until, oh, Chappaquiddick came up again and, and did in his presidency uh, right before Reagan ended up waxing the floor with, uh, with Captain Peanut. But here's the thing. Take a look at what's happened so far with these incumbent presidents that have been essentially unchallenged. If you take a look at Iowa, there were 25,000 votes at the Iowa caucus in 2012 for Barack Obama. What about in 2020? Trump, 32,000 votes. Now, Iowa is a state that President Obama won in both 2008 and 2012. President Trump won it in 2016. It's a classic swing state. So this isn't a case of the voter base being skewed specifically in favor of one party or another. So at the bottom line, in Iowa, Trump's turnout 28% better than Obama's. So what about New Hampshire? Obama, 2012, 49,000 votes. What did Trump do? 119,000. Now, not only is the turnout story that much more impressive for President Trump, so is the storyline. Trump did not, did not win New Hampshire in 2016. In fact, New Hampshire has not gone for a Republican since George W. Bush in 2000. Yet President Trump's turnout, greater than 140% higher than Obama's. So there is a story being told here. After two states, President Trump's turnout is more than double Obama's in two states. That on balance, we're more favorable to Barack Obama. 
So yes, there is a brewing red wave. And the view of the possible? Well, I've got a story called The Anatomy of a Swing State. And it will illustrate the point. But I just got to tell you that it's huge. Might even say huge. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.